appreciate all the good work that you guys do and uh, do trust that the Lord continues to strengthen your arm as you represent the religious community in an ongoing discussion between the church and the state. Thanks, mate. Thank you, Mark. God bless. Every blessing to you. Well, listeners, it is good to be with you. It's good to be with you on a Friday. I'm looking at the watch in front of me. It is half past nine. We have an hour and a half of Q&A in front of us. An hour and a half of Bible questions and answers. I see that we have already received some questions and answers from Bobby. We've received a question from Janice um, and we've received communications from a number of other people. Uh, let us engage in those. But maybe to say this is your opportunity to ask Bible questions and answers if you're listening into the radio this morning maybe you are hanging up the laundry maybe you are driving in your car maybe you got the kind of job where you can sit at your desk and you have your ear pods in your ear and you are listening to Radio Pulpit as the weekend approaches whatever and however you are listening in to the show this morning this really is your show it is an opportunity for you to ask your questions live on air i'm going to tell you how you can go about doing that guys i love listening to your voices i love engaging with real life human beings and speaking to them and so to that end can i encourage you to phone into the studio now that might be a little bit intimidating kind of like gulp um calling in to a live radio uh, studio can be a little bit nerve-wracking but Take the plunge. The telephone number is 012-883-2090. And as you um, and as you phone in, um, it will be great to hear who you are and where you're from. And it gives me the opportunity not just to hear your question, but also to ask clarifying and follow-up questions um, so that we can engage around God's Word. You can also send in WhatsApp voice notes. Uh, we can play those live on air. And those are always fun. The WhatsApp telephone number is 082 Oh, did I actually give you the studio line? I just told you to phone in, but I didn't tell you how to phone in. Let me give you the studio line. It is 012-883-2090. And then the WhatsApp number for studio calls, uh, for WhatsApp voice notes is 082-657-2729. Of course, you can leave... Uh, Facebook comments and you can leave WhatsApp notes. Uh, the way that you do that is you simply send in a WhatsApp note in via that same uh, WhatsApp number or you comment in the live feed currently on the Facebook page Radio Pulpit Radio Console. If you go there right now you'll see that there is a Facebook feed uh, table talk with Mark and uh, on there is the show notes so all of those numbers that I've just described but if you just pop in down below uh, your question I get to see that live and on air and can engage with you um, uh, immediately I do see that my mom is listening in so my mom's listening in from Port Elizabeth at last I managed to tune in this morning I wonder if my mother is sitting with my sister down in Port Elizabeth uh, along with my aunt I think they all might be together uh, great to have you um, 
uh, with us. A couple of questions coming in from Marlene and from Scott and from Janice and from uh, Um So thank you for all of those. Um, there is a greeting that came in from Natasha. Natasha says, Good day, Mark. Uh, Natasha Barnes here. Enjoy the weekend. God bless you. And she is from Dea Gratia uh, in Lambton uh, and uh, Word of Life in Boxburg. Lovely to have you with us, Natasha. I hope that you enjoy the show this morning. Well, let's take a look at the various questions that are starting to flood in. The first one comes from Genesis chapter 4, verse 15, and it comes in from Marlene Britz. And Marlene asks, good morning, Pastor Mark. Uh, Genesis 4, 15, what is the mark upon Cain? What is the mark upon Cain? So let's go to Genesis chapter 4. And uh, let's read the story of Cain and Abel. Um, and you know, it's the kind of it's it's not a very long chapter. So let's uh, just read the chapter together and get a little bit of context going, so that we can answer the question with a degree of certainty and detail. Although <laughs> I not like the answer. So it starts in verse one. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Maybe just to say, even in the opening of this chapter, that chapter 1 of Genesis is the account of creation, the six-day account of creation. Chapter 2 of Genesis really zooms in on the sixth day, the creation of man. And in particular, uh, for the very first time, God acknowledges that something's not good. Um, bottom line is Adam's all by himself, uh, a, a suitable helpmeet cannot be found and so God creates Eve um, as a helper for Adam and Adam's like wow <laughs> Eve's amazing and uh, they are married at the end of that chapter in a ceremony which is described as a man leaving his mother and father being united to his wife and the two becoming one flesh I'm paraphrasing the chapter's not open in front of me chapter 3 is the account of the fall of man to sin and um, yeah just a, a, a sad story of um, of Eve first being tempted but Adam is the federal head um, taking of the fruit uh, because Eve was told that it would make them like God eating of it and they become aware of their nakedness they become aware of the uh, of um, of of good and evil um, and in reality they flee the presence of God um, God then curses Adam Eve and the snake and in that curse we have that glorious promise that one one day there will come from Eve a seed uh, um, that will crush the serpent's head. Of course, that is a shadow and a precursor of Jesus Christ. Immediately after that, God uh, kills um, because he covers Adam and Eve in the skin of an animal, bars them from the the grandeur of Eden, paradise, and uh, they are now um, in the world. Um, Adam and Eve at this stage conceive and bear Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. So now we've got, we got two brothers, Cain and Abel. Abel was the keeper of sheep in verse 2, and Cain was the work of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain bought 
to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also bought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is contrary to you you must rule over it um bottom line just in terms of the narration is you clearly have this presentation of sacrifices to god the one sacrifice is accepted the other is not it would seem if we read from the book of hebrews and um, forward into the new testament that the one is given by faith the other one seems to lack that um one is clearly a blood offering although that is not specified um as the reason why it was accepted in the text although we can see from the rest of scripture this idea of offerings and without the shedding of blood there's no remittance of sin and so it might well be that that forms part of what's going on here but the bottom line is Cain's Cain's offering isn't accepted God says Cain do right and things will go well don't do right and sin is crouching at the door it's it's waiting um, to devour you Cain spoke to his brother Abel when they were in the field Cain rose up against his brother and killed him and the Lord said to Cain where is your brother Abel now bottom line is God knows all things he's omniscient that means that he is all present um, and he is uh, did I say omniscient he's all present now that would be omni omnipresent he's all present he's omniscient he's all knowing and so God knows exactly what Cain has done to Abel in fact later on in the text he makes it abundantly clear he's asking this question to draw out from uh, uh, from uh, Cain himself um, what had happened to Abel um, and he said I don't know am I my brother's keeper you can just hear the sarcasm dripping off his voice in verse 9 in verse 10 and the Lord said what have you done the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground and you are now cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand when you work the ground it shall no longer yield to you its strength you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth so God pronounces a curse against Cain because he has killed his brother Abel verse 13 Cain said to the Lord rather than just accepting the punishment um, and repenting from his actions and living under the yoke which God has set for him Cain said to the Lord my punishment is greater than I can bear behold you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me the question is who's the whoever there and that would be the sons and the daughters and their following offspring from Adam and Eve and the Lord said to him not so if anyone kills Cain vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold and the Lord put a mark on Cain lest any who found him should attack him then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod east of Eden there's then a 
uh, a story of uh, Cain and his offspring and uh, all the way down to the seventh of his name, seventh of his line, Lamach, who basically takes two wives. First case of polygamy in the Bible. It's not a beautiful story. Lamach um, really shakes his fist up at God and says, if you, if Cain's uh, revenge was sevenfold, let Lamach be 77-fold. In other words, the lineage of Cain just gets worse and worse and worse. Except in verse 25, there's a a silver sliver of hope in that Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And so Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And that idea of calling on the name of the Lord is this concept of prayer. Um, and right from that point on, uh, we discover corporate prayer and public prayer uh, and prayer to Almighty God being a staple throughout Scripture. But back to Cain. Cain gets this, this mark right this mark which is placed on him by God by the Lord in verse 15 and the question is what is that mark (laughs) well the answer is we don't really know it's not in the text what we do know is it was a mark it was something it was some kind of mechanism as some kind of marking whether it be a tattoo or whether it be a scar or whether it be something else and that God put on Cain so that Cain would be known so that no one would ultimately pick a fight with Cain if you pick the fight with Cain you would pick a fight with God and uh, and so that would be my best understanding of what that mark was it was something which was in all likelihood physical because in every account from the scripture in front of us it was visible and therefore um, it would have been an indication that no one was to lay a hand on Cain thank you so much for the question really do appreciate it that question came in from um, I'm getting lost it wasn't Natasha it wasn't Scott that question came in from Janice or from Anonymous thank you so much really appreciate that Um, uh, thank you for the question let's go see we've got a number of other greetings and questions which have come in Um, I see uh, Dahalan says good and uh, well I'm guessing it's good morning and wonderful good and wonderful morning to you Pastor Mark looking forward to yet another informative and growth experience thank you you're a blessing of Christ Jesus well thank you so much for the encouragement I, I really appreciate it it's a, it's a lovely way to start off a Friday morning um, hearing encouragement like that so thank you so much Jean says hi Mark and then there's a whole lot of icons a coffee uh, cup I'm guessing so you're clearly drinking coffee um, a dove so maybe that's like shalom peace and uh, and prayer hands <laughs> Vitbank listeners with big smiley faces and uh, and cool sunglasses many blessings from Gina Neil Hunter well Jean Neil thank you so much um, really really enjoy engaging with you ah, I know who asked the question it was Marlene uh, and Marlene puts in further comments uh, sad he never repented well we don't have that in the text there's no indication in the text of repentance coming from Cain and if we read the kind of way the text slides from 
Cain and uh, continues to Enoch and from Enoch to Irod and from Irod to Mahajal and from Mahajal to Lamach, um, Methushel and from Methushel to Lamach. It just seems as if his lineage gets worse and worse and worse, that the generations of Cain were not happy generations. And so um, until we hit uh, chapter 6 and the flood and God's um, absolute destruction of man, we know that the lineage that was saved was not the lineage of Cain, but rather the lineage of this, of this other son, Seth. Um, whom God has appointed and uh, from Seth to Enosh and continuing down the family tree to Peleg uh, we find that the scarlet thread the promise of this seed actually came through a different line now this idea of lines and generations is is very popular in scripture I mean we see it in in Esau and and uh, and Jacob we see it in uh, um um, we, we see it amongst brothers that, that the scarlet thread that comes down all the way to the person of Jesus Christ is traced and some generations produce wicked generations and other generations produce godly generations all the way until we get Mary and Joseph and their son and half son Jesus Christ who is our Lord and our Savior. Marlene also says thank you Pastor. Well thank you for the question really appreciates it and uh, Nikki says uh, hi Pastor Thanks for a great show. Well, Nikki, the show is great because people ask great questions. And so uh, we are looking forward to other good questions coming in from listeners. I'm going to turn to a question which came in from Scott Bobby. Even as I turn there, maybe you've got a question on your mind that you would like to ask. Now is the time. Send your questions in. The way you can send your questions in is on Facebook. If you are on the radio pulpit, radio console facebook page you can just under the live feed um, type your question in i get to see that right in front of me it might be that you want to send in a message via whatsapp the whatsapp telephone number is 082-657-2729 if you are a twit and you are on twitter and you want to tweet it is the handle to engage with me is at 657 a.m and our studio number for this morning, I will read to you shortly, is, let's see if we can find it, um, it is 012, and come on, 012-883-2090, you can phone in, and when you phone in, you can either choose to come live on air, or you can uh, uh, you can just give your question to Vusi who is standing by to take your call and uh, Vusi can always just write it down into a note and post it to me um, Natasha Barnes uh, I've already read that so let's go to the next question um, from Anonymous to Table Talk Pastor Mark Penrith do spirits of the dead have the ability to communicate with the living do spirits of the dead have the ability to communicate with the living that comes in from Janice. Janice sends in that question via WhatsApp. Janice, that's a great, that's a that's a really, really good question. And I'm going to answer it 
primarily with three passages of Scripture. And I'm going to tell you right up front what three passages of Scripture I'm going to appeal to. I'm going to give you an example which just needs to be referenced in the Old Testament from the book of Samuel. I'm then going to go across to the New Testament and we're going to talk about a story. I think it's a true story rather than a parable that Jesus Christ gives of Lazarus and the rich man. And then I'm going to appeal to one or two passages which come from the law both in the Old and the New Testament as they relate to necromancy and that would be communication with the dead and so we're going to start off in the Old Testament um, and we are going to look at the story of the witch of I think it's the witch of Endor um, or am I getting myself confused with uh, uh, a witch that uh, stepped out of um, Middle Earth in the latest series that I've been watching? 1 Samuel chapter 28 is where I want to turn to Saul and the medium of Endor. I got it right. <laughs> Good. That's wonderful. Um, a talk, talking is good, but you want to get, you want to know your Bible better. In uh, chapter twenty-eight of one Samuel, we read: In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. These are not good days, by the way. This is kind of as we reach the end of the story of Saul and Saul in his lifetime. As we go through one Samuel, has just been going from bad to worse as a person. Um, in reality he is the first king of Israel um, but he is but he's really in terms of his character he's just going from bad to worse and his story is going to end in a puddle of tears um, in just a few chapters after this um, as he goes to war and uh, as he comes up short uh, in that battle of course the next king who's going to come over Israel and his story really is told uh, in 2 Samuel the book of 2 Samuel 1 and 2 Samuel were actually one book um, and just split up in the English Bible for our convenience um, but we've been introduced to this young shepherd David who's been growing in in prominence through the book of 1 Samuel but in 2 Samuel he really comes to the fall as the to the fall not to the fall to the fall as the king of Israel but in 1 Samuel chapter 28 we read that in those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel and Achish said to David understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army and David said to Achish very well you shall know what your servant can do and Akish said to David very well I will make you my bodyguard for life now Samuel had died and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah his own city maybe just to hit the pause button there Samuel was the last the final judge of Israel before we are introduced to the kings to King Saul as well as to King David and Samuel himself um, was a uh, a priest he anointed Saul and he anointed David um, and served as a prophet um, the Philistines assembled and came and encamped at uh, Shinim and Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at uh, Gilboa and when Saul saw the armies of the Philistines he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly you might remember this is one difference <laughs> between Saul and uh, and David is that uh, David would look upon Goliath and say this battle belongs to the Lord and go out and slay the giant but Saul would look at the army of the Philistines become afraid and shake in his boots he trembled greatly 
verse 6, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim, uh, that's the Urim and the Turim. We don't know exactly how those works, but they were mechanisms for divining the will of God in the Old Testament used by the priests and um, those who were priestly. Um, and uh, or, or by the prophets and so uh, Saul is just not hearing from God now you might also remember in Saul's story that there were times that Saul would become enraged um, he would even throw spears at David he, he, he really was a crooked um, leader but more than that um, there was a period in Saul's life where the spirit of God departed from him and even an evil spirit was sent to torment him Saul's life has just been getting worse and worse and now God isn't even speaking to him then Saul in verse 7 said to his servants seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her and his servants said to him behold there is a medium at Endor now just to say that God's people are told in God's law given by Moses that they are not to seek out mediums they're not to seek out those who worship other gods those who dabble in necromancy and communication and speaking to the dead they to stay very very far away from those things and so as we read this text we get a, a real indication that Saul has just sunken to an all-time low um, this is about as as low as Saul can get and so Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went he and his two men with him and they came to the women at night and he said divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you and the woman said to him surely you know what Saul has done how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death but Saul swore to her by the Lord I mean this is just shocking. He, he's, he's absolutely violating God in so many ways. Uh, just this past Sunday um, at Central Baptist Church, Charles de Kivett preached a, an incredibly excellent sermon on the Thor on the th on the Thor <laughs> oh no that was just a there was a word slip on the third commandment of the ten commandments do not blaspheme the Lord your God and um, and just related it to the way that people use the Lord's name in vain in so many different ways so this would be an example of using the Lord's name in vain you're doing something contrary to the law of God you're 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 asking a woman to bring up a spirit from the dead but you're swearing by the name of the Lord this is foolishness to the nth degree uh, in my Bible Lord is all in capital letters that's capital L capital O capital R capital D which is an indication that this passage is speaking of the covenant name of God we might call it Jehovah or we might uh, say uh, Yahweh uh, this is the covenant name of God between him and his people as the Lord lives no punishment shall come upon you for this thing verse 11 then the woman said whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. Now we've already been told very explicitly in the text that Samuel is dead. But Saul wants to speak to Samuel. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. I mean, she's terrified. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. 
And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. And then Samuel said to Saul, and there's this discussion between Samuel and Saul, and at the end Sam, uh, Saul fell face length uh, forward and was feared with fear because of the words of Samuel I'm reading in verse 20 and there was no strength in him for he'd eaten nothing all day bottom line is um, the this this uh, Samuel this apparition um, says that uh, he will fall to the hands of the Philistines tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me in other words dead question is is um, Saul speaking to Samuel as in the real Samuel in this text and the text gives us no indication that he's not speaking to Samuel but I think that there's a distinct possibility that this is not Samuel that he's speaking to that he's speaking to something some kind of demonic apparition um, and the reason why I say that is because of Jesus in the New Testament now Jesus in the New Testament is um, obviously um, talking in in parables um, in many instances um, but but there's a story that he says in Luke chapter 16 that I want to draw your attention to uh, Luke chapter 16 from verse 19 to verse 31 um, and maybe just to say that Luke chapter 16 there's first an, uh, the parable of the dishonest manager which is honestly one of the hardest parables um, to wrap one's head around it's quite, quite incredible very witty parable um, and then there's a discussion from verse 14 um, uh, about the law and the kingdom of God um, there's a there's one verse which discover uh, which discusses divorce and remarriage in verse 18 and then there is this story the rich man and Lazarus from verse 19 and onwards and I keep on saying story rather than parable for this reason number one Jesus never says that this is a parable and so I don't think that we have to assume presume that it's a parable although it is found in a body of text where there are a number of parables which are being put forward but Jesus never explicitly says that this is a parable the other thing that I, I, I want to point out just as we, we read uh, this story is that Jesus names a person in this story. Now, frequently as we read the parables of Jesus Christ, he, he has these heavenly stories that have very earthly me meanings, but the heavenly stories are, are almost disconnected from reality. Um, the people don't have names. They, they're, they're, they're the kinds of characters which appear in everyday life a sower of seed a man who goes on a long journey a man who digs a hole and discovers buried tre treasure the, the the individuals that are described in parables often are not described in ways that we could identify them but in this story these people are are, are, are identifiable um, they are clearly identifiable verse 19 says there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen purple by the way I'm just you know back in the day and we're in Luke chapter 16 verse 19 for those that are following in their own Bibles but purple back in the day was an incredibly rare color um, it was so rare that it was valuable if you had purple it was made and now I'm now I'm like pulling from something I read a long time ago and I might 
be wrong if i'm wrong you can just write a correction into the comments um and i will self-correct during the course of the show but purple was made um dyer was made by crushing very specific shells i think possibly um, in a coastal city up in Syria they were found I forget which city in particular it was but they would crush these these shells and produce a chemical and that chemical was then over a process turned into a dye but the whole process was very difficult the shells weren't readily available and so purple was a a very luxurious color if you had purple you had to pay for it and so there was a rich man and we know you as rich because he was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day now in contrast verse 20 at his gate was a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores who desired to feed with what fell from the rich man's table moreover even the dogs came and licked his sores I mean we just get get the impression that these two men are from completely different worlds we're talking about a wealth gap here that is just absolutely massive a, a, a rich man a we get the impression that he is living a decadent luxurious life beyond even contemplation eating off the fat of the land and this poor man who's just hungry and sick and and just terrible now in verse 22 the poor man died and was carried by the angels to abraham's side or uh, you know in the king james abraham's bosom um in the old testament there was described a temporary place for the dead uh, kind of like a holding place in the new testament abraham's bosom i think is best um interpreted um by the words of jesus on the cross when he speaks to the thief that is on his right or on his left being crucified together with him and he says today you will be with me in paradise uh, i think paradise is the same as abram's bosom it is a temporary place for the dead um but for the dead that will be one day resurrected into glorious uh, heaven uh, to be alongside jesus christ and so uh, abram's bosom this this poor man died and was carried away by the angels to abram's side the rich man also died and was buried and in hades now we get the equivalent temporary place where the dead go after death we have paradise or abram's bosom and we have hades um and being in torment and we understand abram's bosom paradise just with jesus amazing glorious um enjoying him as a precursor to enjoying him forever but for those who die without christ for those who die without having repented for those who die without any atonement um for them um carried to hades and into into a temporary place but this temporary place is a place of torment and this this rich man lifts up his eyes and saw abraham far off and lazarus at his side and he called out father abraham have mercy on me and send La lazarus i mean this is the this is the scary thing about death so this rich man lives this amazing life on earth and lazarus is lives this terrible life on earth but in death when the rich man goes to hades to this temporary place of the dead um he he looks up and he sees lazarus and he says no well you know i'm the rich man i'm the man who 
deserves to be served. And so he commands Abraham. I mean, this is the absolute, <laughs> the, 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 the treachery of sin. Even in death, even in torment, he commands Abraham to send Lazarus to serve him. He's called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. I mean, just hit the pause button right now. Friend, if you are living a life which is not yet reconciled to God, know that today is the day of your salvation. Turn at once from your sin and cast yourself upon the person of Jesus Christ who died in your place as a sacrifice, who died for your sins and rose from the grave in victory over sin and who calls upon you now to repent to turn from your love for the things of this world for your love for the things that the rich man dined upon and feasted upon and and wore and turn yourself to the person of Jesus Christ that you might live call out to him immediately because all that waits for you if you do not repent is anguish in this flame but verse 25 Abraham said child remember that you are that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things but now he is comforted yeah and you are in anguish and besides all this between us you and me is a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us in other words between heaven and hell there is a chasm which cannot be crossed those who are in hell's torment will never come into heaven's glory and those who are in heaven's glory and joy and abundant life forever and ever cannot cross uh, into Hades there is a chasm between the two verse 27 and he said then I beg you father to send him to my father in other words ordering Lazarus around <laughs> Lazarus in heaven um, in paradise in Abraham's bosom send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment but Abraham said now this is what relates to the story of the witch of Endor and this is what relates to this question that has come in um, from uh, uh, from anonymous do the spirits of the dead have the ability to communicate with the living I love the question here's the answer it's been a little bit long getting here but here's the comprehensive answer to this question but Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets let them hear them and he said no father Abraham but if someone goes to them from the dead they will repent and he said to him if they do not hear Moses and the prophets neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead here's the answer a there's a chasm between those who are in Hades and those who are in heaven and so therefore it is right to assume that there's a chasm between the living and the dead too secondly um, even when it was requested that Lazarus would go to his brothers Abraham said no why no because they have scripture and scripture can convince them the answer that uh, he said was but if someone goes for the if someone appears to them from the dead surely that will be more convincing and the answer was no if you can't be convinced by scripture by Moses and the prophets you wouldn't even be convinced if you spoke to somebody who was in heaven or in hell and so the 
long answer <laughs> is to look at both the Old Testament um, and that would be uh, this story of Saul and the witch of Endor and to look at the New Testament that would be Luke chapter 16 verse 19 through to verse 21 and as you put that together with all the commands not to engage in necromancy and such like when you put all that together I would say that the short answer is no um, that the spirits of the dead are unable to communicate with the living uh, number one and number two even if they could it would not make a difference now I'm looking and I'm seeing that it's seven minutes past ten I was about to go to a music break but there is a call on the line and so Vusi is going to bring the caller in live on air caller uh, maybe you can just uh, identify yourself because I don't know who I'm speaking to Pastor Mark yes who am I speaking to to your old friend brother John ah John it's good to speak to you again thank you so much for calling in are you well yeah, yeah I'm okay good I'm Pastor. glad yeah can you help me, please? Man? I hope so. Tell, tell me what your question I, is, <laughs> and then we can find out I, together. <laughs> I, went to, I went to my brother, and he said that, that Adam lived a couple of hundred years yes. more. Well, the Bible says Adam died at the age of 930 years. Yeah. But he said, God added more years to him. That's in the Bible. Mm, okay. Uh, thank you for the question. Uh, uh, to be honest with you, I've had questions like this before and I've thought about them uh, many times, but never live on air. But So I, I appreciate the question. That, that's, uh, that's a great one. I, I can I can talk and, and walk you through that and walk you through an answer. Um, of course you can listen on the radio but I, I really appreciate the question thank you so much for asking it okay Pastor Mark God bless you God bless you too bye well, <laughs> cheers well friends um, even as we uh, listened to the question maybe I can repeat it and uh, repeat it as I've understood it um, uh, so the question is did Adam live um, longer uh, than the flood and the question was actually did he live for a couple of hundred years uh, longer than the flood now the answer to that is no so I, I received and we will we'll do this answer and then we'll go to a music break after this so Vissi can get the music ready so I can go and get myself a little bit of um, water and uh, recuperate my my throat so um, the answer is no Adam did not live beyond the flood now Adam's story and uh, developing toward a timeline of all these things and I went through the hard work of actually developing this timeline when I was studying Genesis myself um, and it's and it's worth doing it's worth going and and checking out um, uh, the various different times and I'm gonna go with Genesis chapters uh, well 4 was the story of Cain and Abel so Genesis chapter 5 because Genesis chapter 6 is the story of the flood so all that we have left is Genesis chapter 5 in order to start developing a timeline of who lived and who died and when they lived and when they died um, I took an Excel spreadsheet and uh, and I went and I wrote down all of the dates and I wrote down all of their deaths and and calculated who lived and when they lived until Genesis chapter 5 is really a graveyard chapter it's a chapter of 
of men being born and men dying and uh, and really takes us all the way from Adam through the generations down to the birth of Noah in order to uh, in order to deliver us to chapter 6 of Genesis It's very interesting We've spoken about chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, now 5 And uh, we've referenced chapter 6 a number of times As we've been speaking about um, uh, Genesis this morning But chapters 5 The the, the kind of the story the reason that we are given it is to bridge us from the story of creation and corruption and to get us to the story of catastrophe, which is really the discussion in chapter 6, the story of Noah and the ark and God saving the eight people um, through the ark, through the floodwaters which come. But in chapter 5, we have the genealogy um, of Adam um, through the line of Seth. Now, you will remember in chapter 4, when we discussed Cain. We discussed um, both Cain killing Abel and then we discussed Cain's genealogy up until Lamech who shook his fist at God and and really said if Cain was avenged seven times I'll be avenged 77 times. In chapter 5 we have first the the discussion of Adam. Uh, This is uh, the book of generations of Adam and and maybe just to say that 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 introduction this is the book um, in the Hebrew that's told it um, it's uh, it's a um, it's a phrase which appears frequently through the book of Genesis and introduces us to a new section of the book of Genesis uh, in the book of Genesis this is the the book of the generations of Adam when God created man he made them in the likeness of God in other words uh, there was something peculiar about man to all the other uh, animals around him man is not like the chimpanzee he is not like the whale man is is not like the hippopotamus or the giraffe man is made and created in the likeness of god in the image of god the imagino dea a male and female he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created you'll remember that god created man and names man and then gave man the 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 regency of naming all the animals um, which is what adam did in chapter 2 of genesis when adam had lived 130 years now immediately we know that Adam lived a long time 130 years he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth now we know um, from chapter 4 and from the end uh, or from chapter 4 that Adam and Eve had a first son uh, Cain and then they had a son named Abel then Cain killed Abel the third son he fathered after 130 years Um, I I I, I you know come from a family of longevity especially on my mother's side um we've had a couple of aunts and uh, great aunts and great grandmothers that have lived well into their 90s but nobody who's had a child at 130 years so this immediately kind of triggers us and gives us an impression that things are a little bit different before the flood than things were after the flood after the flood we find that the age of man is greatly reduced as the climate around man is greatly reduced and so after the flood people are living kind of three score and ten years um, 70 years and they're counting that a blessing if they get anything beyond that um, but before the flood we have a much different picture Adam lived 130 years and then he has a son uh, after his image interesting how that switches from being created in the image of God or the likeness of God to now Seth being created in the air or not created being begotten
forgot in the image of Adam. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters and thus all the days of Adam which he lived were uh, were 930 years and then he died. So we know that Adam lived for 930 years. Well Adam had a son his name was Seth and um, Seth lived 105 years and then he fathered Enosh and then Enosh uh, after he had uh, Enosh he lived another 807 years so all the years of uh, Seth were 912 years now this pattern is repeated over and over again I call it a graveyard chapter because at the end of every of the lineage of Adam everyone dies that's the story by the way uh, of the Bible that men are born and that men die some men live for many years as we see in this chapter um, some men live shorter lives but the end of all men is always the same we die why do we die we die because the world has been cursed why is the world being cursed because Adam sinned and he is our federal head and in Adam sin has come to all men you can read about that in the book of Romans chapter 5 and so because all have sinned and fallen short to the glory of God and because the wages of sin is death everyone dies death comes to all men except for one man one perfect man Jesus Christ Jesus came into this world and he was untainted by sin and whilst he was tempted in every way Jesus did not sin in any way so that when Jesus died he didn't die for his own sin no he died as a substitute the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world he died in our place absorbing the wrath of God for the sins of those for which Jesus Christ died it is an amazing gospel story it's one that gets us excited in Jesus abundant life forever life is available as we repent of our sins and put our faith and our trust in him but in chapter 5 of the book of Genesis we have Adam living 930 years Seth living 912 years Enosh living 905 years Kenan living 910 years Mahalalel living 895 years Jared living 962 years and then Methuselah who uh, lives the longest uh, we'll get to him just after Enoch Enoch walked with God um, he actually ascended uh, he's one of only two people who did not die Enoch and the second is the great prophet Elijah and um, he ascended on a chariot Enoch it just says walked with God very interesting two humans did not die and yet in the book of Revelation we have two witnesses two prophets we're not told how they come but they die and then they are resurrected to life I think um, but I am taking a shot in the dark because it's not absolutely clear but I think that those two prophets might be Enoch and uh, Elijah um, and then uh, Jared lives 962 years uh, I said that already Enoch uh, his number of years were 365 and then he walked with God um, and he was not for God took him and Methuselah uh, lived 969 years um, and then uh, Lamach lived 760 77 years Methuselah by the way is the longest recorded life uh, in scripture Lamech who's the father of Noah lived uh, 770 years and after Noah was 500 years old Noah fathered Shem Ham and Japheth and those are the three brothers uh, the sons of Noah and we know in chapter 6 it is Noah his three sons and their wives which are saved through the floodwaters as they are in the ark of the Lord and then they 
that obviously introduces us to the calamity um, of the flood. But while we are in this story of the lifetimes of each one of these people, when you look at the lifetimes and you put them into a spreadsheet, you will note that every single one of them, Adam, Seth, Enosh, uh, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, and Lamach, all of them die just before the flood waters, just before the 500 years of Noah plus the 120 years that God said that Noah was to proclaim um, in the earth and uh, call men away from their sin. We know that no one repented other than Noah and his three sons together with their lives. No one passed into um, uh, the, new, the new world other than Noah and Shem. Um, who was about a hundred years old um, when they entered into the ark. And so if the question, John, was did Adam live after the flood, the answer is definitely no. He would have um, died about 1,250 years before the flood waters. Um, Methuselah lived right up until the day of the flood or the year of the flood or in that region. And Lamech, uh, Noah's father, died um, just a year or a few, a very short time before the flood waters came. Um, the rest of Adam's descendants died. Um, Seth, for example, about a thousand years before the flood. Um, Enosh in the same region. And so it goes up through each one of those generations. They had long life. God granted them life of hundreds of years. Um, but they had lives which were cut off way before the flood came. And maybe just to say that their long lives were probably related to the fact that the ecology of the world, the ecosystem in which they lived was vastly different to the ecosystem that they lived in after the flood waters. Um, we know that the flood um, included the deep giving up its water and the sky giving up its water. It appears as if there was both chasms of water under the earth. We know that uh, you know the, the, the world wasn't uh, didn't work the same as it works now. We, we, we look for pr- uh, precip- uh, presupposition. <laughs> we look for precip. Uh, pre- <laughs> I'm looking for the word for rain that starts with a pre preparation. No, um, precipitation. Pre- oh, guys, give me a hand. You can put that into the into the notes and correct me. Um, but but basically, we have a rain cycle, right? Um, uh, the water is um, evaporated, and that evaporated water forms clouds, and the clouds uh, are moved inland, and the clouds become denser and denser, um, uh, and eventually um, it rains on the land. That's how we receive our water up here in Gauteng anyway. Before the flood, we read in Genesis chapter 2, I'm, I'm not going to guess the verse, maybe if I had to guess, I would say about verse 9 or there about um, we actually read that the water was um, that water would just seep up um, from the ground. There, there was no need for rain. In fact, they didn't even know what rain was when Noah said that uh, that there would be a worldwide flood. It was unknown of. It was a different ecology. It was a different ecosystem. It was a different climate system. And yet, after the flood, after the 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 the, the deep had given forth its water, after the the waters that were entrapped in the in the air above gave up its waters, um, the entire environment changed and uh, and so too then the lifespan of humans changed as well 
Folk, we are going to go to a song break now. We're going to be listening to Marcel Bowden singing How You Love Me. When we come back, we're going to continue with uh, your questions and answers. Looking forward to connecting with you in about three minutes' time. Well, friends, it is good to be with you for the second hour of the show. Um, very, very, uh, what's the right word, engaged listening audience, whether it was Ruth or Brenda or uh, Sussman, uh, precipitation is the word that I was looking for, precipitation. How could I have, how could I have forgotten the word? Um, clearly, uh, Wordle has got me um, convinced that uh, five-letter words are the right ones to talk in, and uh, and anything longer than five letters, and I, I'm starting to struggle with them. Uh, I imagine that there's a couple of Wordle players uh, that are listening in today. Man, I enjoy Wordle. Uh, it's the first thing that I do when wake up in the morning after I pray um, is uh, my wife and I try and give a shot uh, uh, at the wordle of the day um, in fact our whole family all around the country um, plays plays wordle and sees who can get the the, the quickest uh, word in I haven't managed to hit a one or a two yet but most of the other family members around the country have gotten a one or uh, not a one but a two um, at least once I'm looking forward to to getting my two in at some stage um there are a couple i mean now there's quite a few questions that i want to deal with i do want to tell you how you can send your questions in we've only got 30 minutes of the show left um i've been a little bit slow on the first couple of questions i might need to pick the speed up a little bit but how can you join the conversation this morning you can phone into studio i guess that basically if you phone into studio it means that you go to the front of the queue because we because we, we we bring you online almost immediately whereas if you wrote in a question uh, i get to you as and when the question comes up scott your question's next by the way I think um, you can phone into studio on 012334 ah I'm giving you the wrong number you can't phone into studio on that number uh, you need to phone into studio on this number 012-883-2090 I'm going to read that again in case you were writing it down the studio number for this morning is 012-883-2090 you can send a voice note in via whatsapp to 082 Six five seven two seven two nine. You can also just type in a message via WhatsApp. Uh, we've got quite a few that are coming up, um, and you can also drop in a comment on the Facebook live feed, which can be found on Radio Pulpit Radio Console's Facebook page. It has also been shared to Pastor Mark Penrith as well as to Central Baptist Church Pretoria. Always love to engage with you guys. Um, please, I, I do encourage you to tell us who you are. Um, it's always nice to know the names of the various people who are listening into the show, uh, where you are from and which church you attend. It gives me an idea of who the listening audience is. Always appreciate that. So thank you so much to everyone who has gone through the effort of typing in a comment or sending in a WhatsApp so far this morning. Well, let's get into it and let's continue going through the various different questions that we have received. Guys, I didn't bring my glasses in today. It's not the first time that this has happened this week. I'm getting forgetful as I get older. And as a result, everything is a little bit um, um, hazy in front of me. Scott Bobby says, um, this is all part of the Great Reset Agenda. 
Um, the United Nations is implementing globalist laws to create a global government and they are stealing our freedoms and making us slaves to the new world order and I think that Scott's question because he did ask it at 9.26 so Scott's question in all likelihood is related to the insert that we had at the beginning of the show with Freedom of Religion South Africa regarding the new terrorism legislation act as it is uh, related to MPOs to non-profit organizations. Um, Scott, that may be true to one degree or another. Let me just say, I think you and I might hold to the same eschatology, which is a study of things to come in that uh, I do see some of what of the sentiments of what is in your paragraph um, as part of the future uh, during a time of tribulation. However, Scott, let me just say that the next kind of moment in unfulfilled prophecy um, isn't that we would see these things happening in our life but rather that these things uh, would happen after a secret rapture of the church and by secret I don't mean that no one will know that it happened (laughs) I mean that no one knows the time when it will happen that's the next event in unfulfilled prophecy Um, and after that many of the things that you've written in that comment um, will unfold now does it make sense that some of the pieces on the chessboard are being prepared for the final end game? <laughs> Can you hear that I'm a chess player? Well, yes, I, I, I do think that uh, that the end game is being set up even as we speak and things are being put into place, um, even in front of our eyes. For example, the establishment of Israel as a country and much of the wars that we see around us play very well into a prophetic reading of the book of revelation but as to whether these things will happen right in front of us and in our lifetime i think we're going to have to wait or i don't think that those who are in christ will be around um during that part of the puzzle we have discussed that in previous episodes of the of the show but scott thanks for making the observation and having the comment um I'm just now trying to find stuff that we haven't gone through. Another question, I noticed that one third of the angels fell, which is 33 and a third percent, and the remaining are 66 and a sixth percent. Could that be the true meaning of the number of the beast reflected and the remaining evil angels of Satan yet to be thrown down by Michael mid-tribulation? No, I think that that is an interesting observation and a fascinating math calculation, but I don't think that that is related to the number and to the mark of the beast. Um, uh, the, the question was also then related to Genesis chapter 6. I know that many teach that the one-third cast down is often said to be how many angels rebelled against God, but Revelation says that Satan cast and one-third to the earth and not God, which may in fact be the very angels who sinned with women in Genesis chapter 6, meaning that Satan sent one-third of his angels to fall to earth. And now the remaining 66 and a sixth percent of evil angels are yet to fall. I don't think that that I, 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 I don't see how that would work out or if it's necessary to hold to that in terms of what scripture reveals. Um, although you've now mentioned uh, Genesis chapter 6 which speaks of the mighty men of old. Jude speaks about I believe the same angels which, which are bound because of their evilness. They are described as the sons of God coming into the daughters of Cain in Genesis chapter 6. Um, I do think that those are angels and I do think that those 
those are fallen angels, but I only think that a portion of the angels that fell engaged in that activity, whatever it might be. Um, Nikki says, thanks for a great show. Uh, Marlene, thank you, Pastor. Linda Yobert says, good morning. Always interesting listening to you. Greetings from a beautiful Montague, Western Cape. Linda, always great to hear from you. Thank you so much for engaging and interacting. Three questions from Teresa. Teresa, I'm going to get to at least one of your questions today. Uh, greetings. Trust you are great. I am great. Thanks, Teresa, for asking. Scripture and questions. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is one of the questions, and that concerns um, things sacrificed to, eld- uh, to, uh, to elders, to idols. Um, he has another question from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 10 uh, again it's uh, sacrifices to elders and what are your thoughts about the two verses doesn't seem like a contradiction um, and then a second question does this passage also mean that other idols from different religions are actually demons um, and then lastly paraphrase so chapter 8 gives the sense that we can either eat or not depending on our consciences okay so it's actually one question in three parts um, Teresa let's read the passages of, of scripture together with our listeners so 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is where we will start and if we go and spell 1 Corinthians correctly we can actually find the chapter it says um, food offered to idols that's the heading in my Bible of chapter 8 and I'm going to begin at verse 1 although your question highlights verse 4 in verse 1 it says now concerning food offered to idols we know that all of us possess knowledge this knowledge puffs up but love builds up if anyone imagines that he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know but if anyone loves God he is known by God therefore as to the eating of food offered to idols we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one Uh, just so far in the reading of God's word and he wants us to compare with 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 19 to 20 but even before I do that Teresa um, where it says that idols are are, um, uh, where it says that we know um, that uh, an idol has no real existence my favorite passage is related uh, related to that is found in Isaiah uh, the book of Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 44 um, uh, it's quite a long section it's from verse 6 all the way through uh, to verse uh, 23 but it's, it's kind of funny Isaiah pokes fun uh, at those who worship idols and they say that those who fashion idols are nothing and the things that they delight in do not profit and the witnesses in other words the idols don't see and they don't know uh, that they might be put to shame who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing and behold all his companions shall be put to faint be put to faith and then in verse 12 he describes how idols are made the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over in the coals and he fashions it with hammers and works it in his strong arms and he becomes hungry and his strength fails and he drinks no water and he's faint and the carpenter stretches out the line and he marks it out with a pencil and he shapes it with planes and he marks it with a compass and he shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house and he cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree 
or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest and he plants a cedar and the rain nurtures it and nourishes it and then it becomes fuel for a man and he takes part of it and he warms himself and then he kindles a fire and bakes bread and he also makes a god and worships it he makes it an idol and he falls down before it in other words from one tree you make fire in order to make bread and from one tree you make fire in order to be a little bit warm and from that same tree you make an idol it's just ridiculous half of it he burns in the fire over half he eats meat and he roasts it and is satisfied and he warms it and he says to himself ah i'm warm i've seen the fire and of the rest of it he makes it into a god he's idol and he falls down to it and worships it and he prays to it and says deliver me for you are my god it's just a ridiculous picture um and uh whenever i read um 1 corinthians chapter 8 and uh, it says that uh, uh, we know that an idol has no real existence i think of this picture that isaiah gives us of a man chopping down a tree making a fire for himself and um, cooking some bread on it and for the rest of the tree making an idol and worshiping it um it is ridiculous in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we have a continuation of this discussion. Um, and as we get to the end of a section uh, from verse 1 to verse 20, um, we start to talk a little bit more about idols. Uh, in, in verse 1 to verse 20, there's a warning against idolatry. And if I remember the passage correctly, I actually preached it a, a few years ago. There, there's a number of examples of those who fell into idolatry, including the nation of Israel. Um, but really, explain that they shouldn't have fallen into idolatry because they had that spiritual rock that followed them the rock was Christ even in the wilderness as they as they were revealed the one true living God it was Jesus that was revealed to them they should never have fallen uh, into idolatry and yet they did and so in verse 14 we get this warning therefore my beloved flee from idolatry I speak as to sensible people judge for yourselves what I say the cup of blessing that we bless in other words the you Eucharist, um, and by Eucharist, uh, I'm, I'm really referring to the Greek word, that's the idea of communion, the idea of communioning with one another, partaking with one another, um, that's the second word, this idea of partaking would be the word kononia, uh, which is sometimes used of this interaction and partaking together, Eucharist is thanksgiving, uh, it's another word which is used of this, um, of this not so much a ritual, but of this remembrance, of this uh, remembrance around the Lord's table of the death of Jesus Christ but but being given in picture form of the cup and of bread and so Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 14 therefore my beloved you need to flee from idolatry and I speak as to sensible people judge for yourselves what I say verse 16 the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation that's the canonia in the blood of Christ the bread that we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ because there's one bread we who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread if you come from a liturgical background you would say those words every week on a Sunday as you participate in the bread and the cup, uh, the bread that we break um, um, uh, 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 because there's one bread, we who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread. Now consider the people of Israel, here's the example 
Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Well, we know that from the Old Testament. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy how uh, are we stronger than him basically what he's saying is um, uh, you cannot participate in both uh, the worship of idols as well as in the communion table uh, the worship of God these two are mutually exclusive they do not belong together because the one is worship of Yahweh the one true living God and the other is participation not with an idol which is just a block of wood it's nothing but rather with whatever is behind the idol and in terms of false religion that would be a demonic manifestation so if you think of a false religion you can put a name to whatever false religion you like it is not that the religion actually has a god behind it but rather it has a lesser god it has a demon behind it um, all false religion is demonic ultimately and Paul is saying these two things are mutually exclusive you can't be half a pick your false religion and half a Christian um, and that has a lot I think to say in terms of um, present syncretism between maybe Christianity and African traditional religion you, you can't put these two things together <laughs> they are separated because the one is worship of the true living God and the other is not and uh, your third question there, oh, does the paraphrase also mean that all other idols from different religions are actually demons? Well, not all idols. Some idols are just blocks of wood. Um, but certainly where there is a religious um, link or where there is any religious power attached to the idol or to a false religion, it always has demonic influences behind it. Your third question is, so chapter 8 gives us the sense that we can either eat or not depending on our conscience and not be a stumbling block. Now in chapter 10 we are told not to eat, so which one do we focus on? Please clarify. Well they're talking to two different circumstances, uh, Teresa. The one is rightly saying, hey listen, yeah, this is just a block of wood. So whether it's been uh, whether there was a sacrifice or not it's been sold in the meat market whether you eat of it or not is actually inconsequential other than don't sin against your conscience the second one is saying listen yeah, don't mix your religions don't be half a Christian half a and then whatever religion you can think of um, you're either with Christ and in Christ or you're not you can't be half of something and half of something else and so whilst it is both a discussion around idolatry and it's both a discussion around possibly the meat offered to idols. Uh, they are talking about two different circumstances or, or similar circumstances but with two different applications. Um, don't be um, half one religion and half Christian. They, the two don't go together. Um, God's promise to redeem those in the pit of Sheol is found in Zechariah. The prophet Zechariah says, this is another question uh, that comes in from Scott, uh, chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. 
also uh, as for you also because of the blood of your covenant I have set you free uh, set you, uh, free your prisoners from the pit that Sheol in which there is no water you prisoners of hope um, yes Scott um, and so Sheol really is just the place of the dead um, that's neither talking of Hades um, or of Abram's bosom um, but rather just those who are dead if we are to be rescued from the place of the dead it will be because of the covenant of God and ultimately the person of Jesus Christ thanks for that uh, that note from the book of Zechariah um, so I'm just reading here there's a note from talent um, but talent I don't read this as a question rather as a statement I'm not going to read that question I might have to spend a little bit of time reading it it's quite long um Heliot says hi pastor is it true that you have to first be baptized with the Holy Spirit or submerged um as a um as an adult in water or speak in tongues to be really saved and inherit eternal life what an excellent question Helit and uh, I'm just looking wow there are a lot of questions to get to um, but this is such an important question I, I want to de- uh, deal with it um, to one degree um, of uh, I, I, I want to get really to, to the to the heart of it um, so Helit um, the question is, is it true that you have to first be baptized with the Holy Spirit and then, in brackets, submerged as an adult in water or speak in tongues to really be saved? I think you, the, the, you're speaking of two baptisms, yeah, and there might be a conflagration. I don't know if that's the real word, um, <laughs> of, of two separate questions. So there's a baptism here of water that you're speaking about and a baptism of the Holy Spirit that you're speaking about. And maybe just to say up front, friends, in Scripture, these are two different baptisms. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is spoken about probably most clearly uh, you can see it spoken about in Romans chapter 6 um, Romans chapter 6 you can you can read about the baptism of the Holy Spirit there um, this baptism is a once of bapt- oh, it's it's a baptism which happens at the point of salvation it is a an immersion because that's what the word baptism means baptizo in the Greek means to immerse baptism in the Holy Spirit is an immersion into the Holy Spirit or an immersion into Christ so that Paul can say in the book of Romans I think Romans chapter 6 that those who have as many as have the Spirit have Christ as many of of, of those who have received the Holy Spirit been baptized by the Holy Spirit are in Christ in fact the two are inseparable and that would be the baptism of the of the Holy Spirit the second baptism the baptism of water is spoken about and you can see that clearly in Acts chapter 2 um, and you can hear the command of Christ in the book of Matthew chapter 28 at the end of the book of Matthew chapter 28 the baptism of of Christ is water baptism that's to be as an adult a professing adult who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and then is baptized in water and again the word baptizo means to be immersed in water as an adult now we've put the two baptisms side by side but acknowledge that they are different baptisms the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of water now the question is is either of these baptisms necessary for salvation and then we'll get to the third question which is related to speaking in tongues because again there we have a separate discussion so firstly water baptism is that necessary for salvation I would say no no water Water baptism is not necessary 
for salvation. Water baptism is merely an outward symbol of something which has happened internally. It is an act of obedience that believers go through in obedience to Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. Now, this becomes kind of important because Baptists, I'm a Baptist, so I believe in full immersion baptism as an adult. Baptists aren't the only Christians that are out there, and there is a difference of opinion as to what water baptism is. And I want to be very clear that those who believe that water baptism doesn't save you, but they practice what I would call christening, um, and that would be the sprinkling of water onto babies as a sign of them being within a covenant community, uh, which is a different interpretation of what baptism means. I would say that it is the sign, an outward sign of something which has already happened internally. Um, But those who practice baptism differently to me, I'm by no means saying that they are not saved. Um, Baptism is an act of obedience subsequent to salvation, not an act of obedience which leads to salvation. Salvation is really easy. The gospel is not difficult to understand. The gospel is that Jesus died for our sins as a substitute. The gospel is that Jesus rose from the grave in victory over death and over Satan and over this world. The gospel message is a call, a call on us to repent, to turn away from our sins and to put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. If we do that, we are saved. If we declare with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We are saved upon our profession, um, upon our acceptance. We are saved by Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. The act of baptism is an obedient response, I believe, that comes after salvation. It is the fruit of salvation, not the root of salvation. So that's uh, water baptism. The second baptism that we spoke about was the Holy Spirit baptism. Now, the Holy Spirit baptism, I believe, happens at the moment of salvation. Uh, as the Holy Spirit is given to the believer as a sign and a seal to the day of redemption. Holy Spirit baptism is the immersion that we receive at the point of salvation as we are immersed into the Holy Spirit and immersed into Christ. The the book of Romans chapter 6 describes it as dying with Christ and being immersed with him, buried with him um, in his death and then being resurrected with him to new life. That happens at the moment of salvation. And so if the question is, do you need to be baptized by the Holy Spirit in order to be saved? I would say yes, because baptism by the Holy Spirit happens at the point of salvation. Third part to your question, um, Halet, and I, I hope that I'm answering this in a way that you can understand, is is baptism of the Holy Spirit synonymous with speaking in tongues? And then, as a second part of that question, do I need to speak in tongues in order to be saved? Now, the Holy Spirit uh, speaking in tongues is not synonymous with baptism. So we read of baptism in a number of places in scripture. Not every time that we see and hear of people getting saved, do they speak in tongues. In actual fact, it's on rare circumstances in the book of Acts that we read of tongues. We read of tongues when the first believers and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and the and the church is inaugurated in Acts chapter 2. The next time that we read of tongues is when um, the, uh, the the churches in Samaria are putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and the gift of tongues is given to them. This happens about 
a number of years after the first accounts uh, in uh, on Pentecost. The third time that we read about tongues is when the first Gentile, you'll notice it was the first believers in Jerusalem, the first believers in Samaria, and then the first believers in uh, Gentile believers, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. The last time that we read about tongues in the book of Acts um, is when the last Old Testament saints put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. They described as the um, as the disciples of John the Baptist and they, they know of John's water baptism but they know nothing of the Holy Spirit and we read that they speak in tongues. Only those four occurrences do we read that the gift of tongues was given. Now the gift of tongues very specifically Haliot, when you read in Acts chapter 2 is languages that are known to men. This is not gibberish, this is not repeated phrases that are that, that make no sense it is languages known to men in uh, on the day of pentecost in acts chapter 2 so lastly is water baptism necessary for salvation no water baptism is an act of obedience that flows from salvation number two is the baptism of the holy spirit necessary for salvation and i would say yes the baptism of the holy spirit is happens at the point of salvation Number three, uh, is tongues necessary for salvation? And I would say no, because that's not what we have evidenced in Scripture. Um, but second to that, tongues is not the only evidence um, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The greater evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit would be the fruit of the Spirit described in Galatians chapter 5. That's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. And if you go and read for yourself as extra homework, Elliot, um, in the book of 1 Corinthians from chapter 12, 13 and 14, you'll discover that not Everyone has the gift of tongues. That's made clear for us at the end of um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we discover why. And the answer is that there are greater gifts than tongues. For instance, prophecy and those gifts which are involved in the edification of the church. Heliot, loved your question. Hope you got a comprehensive enough answer. Guys, I can't believe that I've come to the end of the show. It has gone so much quicker than what I had anticipated. Thank you to all of you who said hi on Facebook and via WhatsApp for those who sent in voice notes and for those that engaged in so many ways. I'm sorry to those whose questions I couldn't read. I see Sue, there's a question regarding forgiveness. Hopefully I'll pick that up. I've got a friend who's, who, whose book on forgiveness I've been reading. Um, maybe I'll get him in uh, to chat about forgiveness uh, next week. And Glenn, uh, thank you so much uh, for your answer regarding the genealogy question. Really appreciate that. I'm not going to have time to read it right now live on air, but I always enjoy your inter uh, your interactions, my friend. To sign us off as we do each and every week, our prayers do go out to all the elders as well as to the deacons who hold the line in local churches all over our country. Um, we thank God for the way that he gifts his church as well as for the missionaries who have been sent out from South African churches who serve in foreign fields. Um, planting churches and working hard for the kingdom all praise to God uh, for you as an answer to the church's prayer 
pray for and much respect always goes out to those who hold the line in our country such as our police officers our defense force and for all who dispense justice in our land as well as for our country's firefighters and paramedics and our nation's nurses and medical facility medical facility officers our medical personnel as well as for educators teachers and principals and for correctional service officers We'll be praying for you guys, even as the show comes to an end this morning. You have been listening to Table Talk with me, your host, Mark. Uh, We will be going to the news shortly. And so until next week, Friday, do walk wisely, do live holy, and do testify zealously. Amen.